Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 66 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and no surprise, this week what matters is the US Open at one of the most storied venues in American golf, Oakmont in Pennsylvania. Now, it's clearly been an unintentionally long layoff for State of the Game, but I think you'll agree it's been worth the wait when we hear from our special guest this week, 2006 US Open winner Jeff Ogilvie, who's been most gracious in agreeing to give us some time on Championship Eve. However, before we talk to him, let me first introduce my co-host as always, the other Jeff, who will go as Shaq this week for the purposes of not being too confusing, blogger, yeah. analyst, podcaster. Jeff, Shaq, if it's been too long, let's not apportion blame. Let's just say we're happy to be back and this has been worth the wait. Good to be back, Rod, and uh, couldn't be happier to be doing it from one of the great places in golf here at Oakmont. Uh, it's just absolutely beautiful here in the last three days, and hopefully it will continue, but the forecaster says it's not going to. Chat about all that, Charlie, and uh, good for you. Good break for you not to have to host this week, Jack, with, with your, uh, your new podcast, which is going <laughs> terrifically. I can well. read an ad if you'd like, but I don't think you want to hear about me undies. Yeah, not, not for free. <laughs> don't start the me undies. Here in Australia, partner with today's guest in the Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead golf design firm, player, analyst, commentator, columnist, Mike Clayton. Clates, really looking forward to your insights today. Always exciting when it's a major week, isn't it? Thank you, Rod. It is exciting, yeah. It'll be very interesting to watch the course this week as much as the players. Exactly. Well, we, and we've already seen bits and pieces of that, which we will talk to our special guest today. Last by no means least, eight-time PGA Tour winner, including three WGC events, and of course, the 2006 US Open at Wingfoot, Jeff Ogilvie. Jeff, as I said, really appreciate, appreciate you taking some time during tournament week. Very gracious of you and looking forward to chatting today. No worries, Rod. Thanks for having me. No, not, uh, not at all. Let's start with it. I know you've been asked this question a couple of times, but uh, 10 years, of course, and I know that there's been a lot of people asking you about, you know, 10 years since you won the US Open. Does it feel like, A, just yesterday, B, a lifetime ago, or C, some weird combination of both of the above? Well, I see, I think. Um, it does feel like just yesterday in a lot of ways, uh, but it does feel like there's been a lot of golf between since then and now. So um, time is weird like that, yeah. So some days it feels like yesterday and other days it feels like a lifetime ago. Not just golf, Jeff, life. You just had a birthday as well recently and all that other stuff keeps happening outside of golf, doesn't it? We forget about that as fans. It keeps moving along, yeah. it's uh, The grey hairs are coming and I'm getting older and older, so it's... Uh, I'm not a young. I'm not a young golfer anymore. No, they, they go from grey to disappearing completely, and that's just sort of the cycle of it. You do twenty-first engagements, weddings, and that's what happens to your hair. It goes from short to long to grey to disappearing completely. Jeff, let's talk to you first. I, I'm guessing you've had a chance to uh, get out and play some holes at Oakmont already this week. Can I just get some initial thoughts before we really dig into some of the stuff that's making headlines around the place? Um, well, I mean, Oakmont's an incredible golf course. Uh, it does everything to make you want to hate it, but you can't help but love it. It's um, incredibly difficult, amazing piece of land, uh, unbelievable greens, but you just you just can't help but love the place because it just looks so good. It's it's just got such amazing holes. Terribly difficult, but uh, probably not great fun to play, but very satisfying to have a good score on. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I heard you say that sort of somewhere else, and that does make some sense. We, of course, have seen, and everybody would have seen, a bunch of stuff on social media of players, golf balls disappearing in the rough and uh, the greens running so fast that they look almost impossible to the naked eye. Is that a fair representation of how the course is actually playing, or Jordan Spieth seemed to suggest that there were some places that rough was thicker than others and those sorts of things? Is what we're seeing a realistic representation of the course? 
It's definitely variable. It's definitely USGA rough um, where the spots where lots of balls are going to end up, it seems particularly thicker than it in other places. Um, it's They've got some magic fertilizer over here because I've never seen grass like this. It's um, it's it's amazing that it can be that long and that thick and not fall over. It's um, it's incredible grass. There's some spots. If we didn't have spotters and marshals out there everywhere, we'd be losing balls all over the place. I was going to say that that might actually be an issue, mightn't it? Just judging from some of the pictures we've seen, balls literally disappearing. You wouldn't be able to find them from five feet away unless you you sort of trot on it. Um, is yeah, unless you unless you unless you've got a good lie, um, you have to be standing right vertically above the ball to be able to see it for sure. Wow. You played a course in 2007, Jeff, and I know it was a long time ago. Some comparisons between the Oakmont of 2007 and this time. Can you remember what it was like in 2007, and does it feel similar? Um, it feels the, – the setup seems pretty similar to me. I mean, nine years ago, as I said, our memories get a bit distorted over time, but it seems pretty similar to me. Um, they moved a few more – they took a few more trees out, which doesn't affect the play, but it, you can now see a lot more of the golf course from the clubhouse, which is a great look. Um, it's, but the yardage I think is the same. I think the tees are kind of in, I don't think they've done any, um, changes to the golf course. I think the bunkers may be a bit deeper in spots. Um, some of the fairway bunkers are incredibly deep, but I can't really remember them being that deep. But, um, I think we'll weather aside as Jeff suggests or Shaq suggested earlier that the, the forecast is a little disastrous for Thursday. Um, weather aside, I think we'll see probably a similar type winning score or kind of type of scoring that we saw last time. Storms, I think, for Thursday, is it not? They're predicting? Yeah, 100% chance of rain. What's that likely to do the course, Jeff, do you think, in your opinion? Is it so firm that it won't make much of a difference? Spieth suggested that if we see lots of rain, you might see some underpar scoring, but that if it stayed the same, overpar would definitely win. Would you sort of concur with that? Um, I don't know. I think rain can do both. I think rain will take a smidge of the fear out of the speed of the greens. Um, a bit of moisture on them would definitely help uh, putting a little bit, but it's going to play longer. The fairways are running at the moment. If the fairways stop running, it's going to play very long. Um, and the rough, I can't even imagine the rough being wet. Uh, I think, <laughs> I don't think it'll be any easier if it's wet. I think it'll just be a slightly different Difficult, if that makes sense. Yeah, different. I think Adam Scott's quote was true. He said, even if they make it easy, it's going to be hard. <laughs> it's just a just a brutally difficult test of golf. Shaq, you, of course, uh, are on site there, and we know that Oakmont has a wonderful history in American golf and, of course, with the US Open. Just some thoughts from you, firstly, on the venue, and then maybe chat a little bit about the setup, and I'm sure you've got some questions for Jeff about uh, about how the course has been presented this week. Yeah, the venue, the, the feeling when you walk around is incredible. Uh, it is lynx-like, for lack of a better description, because of the openness and the views you get across the property. Uh, you never see the turnpike. It's so so incredible when you go over it and you look across the back towards the clubhouse, and there's just some wall they put up that isn't so hot. But uh, it, it, the view across is amazing with the clubhouse. Um, and uh, the architecture is still... Uh, fantastic but it definitely they've done some things you know jeff alluded to the deepness of the bunkers it looks to me like the floors they try to make flat so balls kind of like we see some of the links do which i don't care for um they seem to have some conflicted feelings about how to deal with the sand um and then you know the rough is just it's just absurd i'm so glad jeff said what he did and ernie else 
uh, kind of called it out in, uh, as nicely as, as he can always do uh, in his press conference. It's just how on steroids it is. And I find, I, I just, yeah, it was interesting. I'll, I'll just put it this way. There was a great quote from Jack Nicholson, the My Shot in the new Golf Digest, where he, he defended Ruff, and, and this is what I'll be curious to hear what Jeff has to say. He felt that Ruff, there is skill in Ruff, that it made him a better player learning how to hit shots out of Ruff around the greens. And I look at this Ruff, Jeff, and I just see, I don't see skill in this. I don't see skill from the fairway. Uh, being in any way part of the equation, and uh, nor do I. I definitely don't see it around the greens. Uh, the ability to occasionally get up and down, and, and Ernie touched on this, but it just looks it just looks like hack out rough consistently almost ninety nine percent of the time. Um, yes, it's. I mean, there is skill hitting, not the fairway shots. If you miss the fairway, getting your sandwich out and hacking it up the fairway, there's not a lot of skill involved there. I don't think. Around the greens, I think, I mean, there must be a skill if professional golfers are better at it than everyone else, I mean, but it's a very narrow skill. Um, it's not that broad kind of skill you see on Lynx Golf or Augusta or Royal Melbourne where there's short grass under your ball and you can putt it, you can chip it with a 7-iron, you can hit any club you want. I mean, that's, that's uh, a very broad test of skill. You test, you're testing a, a much larger range of a player's short game. This, you're just testing... The sixty-degree wedge out of the rough. I mean, where there is a skill, but it's a, it's a, it's a narrow skill band. You know, I mean, if you're good at that, you're going to be, you're going to have a chance. If you're not, you're going to have no chance. So it's, I think it would be preferable to see. It's much more interesting to see players reach for the putter, then for the seven iron, and then for the hybrid, and then for the low wedge, and then for the sandwich, and, and and to not know what to do. This is quite simple. You just pull your sixty out and you kind of hack it out like a bunker shot and hope it goes all right. So it's. As you say, it's it's minimizing skill. It's just narrowing skill to one little to one little area. I think. Mm. Clay, I want to get your thoughts on that because it's it's one of the, the great things about golf. Is, and, and Jeff used the word there: interesting and entertaining. Options are what make golf interesting, aren't they? And when you the more you you narrow down options, the less interesting you make the golf. That seems to be the argument. Does that sound fair to you? Well, of course. It, it seems like you know, as Jeff said, Royal Melbourne and Augusta Sanders test your short game because of the variety. In fact, they're not testing your short game at all at Oakmont, as far as I can tell, all they're doing is punishing you for missing the target. So yeah. you miss the target, you get punished, you're, you're, you make a bogey and move on. So, so there are two ways to look at target golf. It's the way most people think of target golf is hitting the ball into a basket of washing and it splats and stops. But in America, it seems you either hit the target, i.e. the fairway, and then you hit the next target, i.e. the green, and if you don't, you punish. So it's very black and white, it seems to me, which is the way the US Open most often is, obviously not at Pinehurst or Chambers Bay, but I, mean, I would argue that they were much more interesting opens to watch than anything that had come before them in the previous 20 years. I kind of agree. And Shaq, I wanted to get your take on that. It does seem like we've gone a little bit back in time. This is the US Opens of the 80s and 90s that we saw where you know narrow fairways, hit it through the goalposts, missed the target. Only one option is to hack out. We haven't seen that. Mike Davis has been pretty innovative with in recent years with a few of the setups. This seems to be a real throwback. Any thoughts on perhaps why? He's come under a lot of fire for that too, obviously, over those years. Oh, yeah. Well, they have to do this uh, to, because the golf ball goes so far. They just uh, to, to try and prevent players from just, just overpowering the course, I think they feel the need to do this. And that's just the characteristic that has been synonymous with Oakmont. So they've 
I think they feel uh, obligated to do that. I mean, that said, I, they were out mowing in the middle of the day. I saw Jeff was out playing, and uh, I was out walking around. Just uh, I was amazed to see them mowing the rough, and I found out they've actually lowered it another quarter of an inch. So he still has a graduated rough and the concepts that he's been introducing. It's just more the density of the rough than, than the height and the old style. Just you miss the fairway. Uh, and you're in four inch rough, you are missing the fairway in, I don't know what it is, probably two and a half, but it just goes straight down and it's, it's, uh, it's just, just pumped up on all sorts of chemicals. What sort of grass? And is so, what sort of grass? It's, uh, they're cool season grasses. It's a uh, rye grass and bluegrass and there's probably some poa in there, but, um, I, it just is, uh, that's the characteristic they want here. They love that. They're in love with their difficulty and mm-hmm. heart is good and, that's the nature of the place. So I understand that, and that's fine. I kind of like the going back to some of those elements, but I just don't quite get the the, the need to make the rough the way they have, and to uh, because I was just going through. Uh, Jeff would be interested. I just posted on my website uh, some comments from Jeff Hall, who does a lot of the setup, dirty work for for Mike Davis, and I mean dirty work in terms of just the uh, the grunt work, and 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 I believe he does the front nine and. And he mentioned that out of 10 balls, they want six to seven from uh, missing the, the fairway to be able to advance it to the green. Uh, and he said that about a week ago, and that's just not going to thats not gonna happen, I don't think. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Um, we'll see. Jeff Ogilvy, what does it do to the mindset of the player? When this is all the talk, I mean, there's so much focus on this stuff, obviously. You can't get away from it around the course, around the world. I mean, you open up an internet page, if you've got an interest in golf, you'll see a picture of or a comment about how difficult Oakmont's going to play, et cetera, et cetera. What does it do to the mindset of the player? You're about to do something that not many people are going to do this week and play in the U.S. Open. Um, I think most of the sensible players hopefully um, knew what to expect when they're on the way here. I don't. There's no surprises here for me. It's just uh, it's Oakmont and it's the USGA and it was, it, it was going to be this way. Um, so I assume any of the big-time guys who played a lot of U.S. Opens and had any um, aspirations to win this tournament, had already kind of understood that it was going to be like this before they got here. Um, that being said, I think um, it makes you a little bit defensive. It's hard to swing freely, if you like. Um, it's, it's fairway. It's not just fairway is better. It's fairway is the only way. I mean, you have to hit the fairway. Um, and Oakmont is one of those rare great golf courses. In fact, it might be the only great golf course that punishes you on both sides of the fairway on every hole. Um, there's no bail on any hole, and it's incredibly long, so it's very difficult to go back to your to your irons and three wood even sometimes. I mean, it's it's incredibly long, and these greens are not really fit for four irons and five irons, most of them. Um, so it, it just less defensive, and just it's just hard to swing freely um, because you just know that there's a there's a bogey or double if you don't hit it down the middle and that kind of tightens guys up. So I think it's it's the guys who can play a sensible strategy and swing it in a carefree manner are going to have a big chance because it's as you know when we control when you can try to control the golf swing you lose control. So I think it's um it's going to be a finding a way to to swing freely with um sensible decisions if that makes sense. No let-up seems to be the constant theme here from players. No let-up off the tee, no let-up into the greens, no let-up on the greens, no let-up around the greens. Have you played Oak much, Jeff Ogilvy, outside of the US Open and 
And is there much to compare? I mean, everybody says hardest golf course in America. We could host the US Open there next week if we had to in an emergency, all that sort of thing. Has that been your experience? Have you played there outside of the US Open? You know what? I haven't. I've only ever played it in US Open setup. I played it quite a, quite a bit in 2007, like leading up into it and the Open and uh, and this week, really. it's um, So I've only played it in US Open spec. Um, yeah, I was, as Jeff alluded to, as Shaq alluded to before, I was out there this morning and they had the rough cutters out and I bumped into a yeah, young ground staff kid from New South Wales Golf Club, actually, who was um, helping them set up the golf course and prepare the tournament. As they do, I think they bring people in from all around the world to kind of help him sort the course out. And I had a chat to him and pulled up next to his rough mower and there was not a lot of grass coming off that um, rough mower. They, they, there was a little bit of show involved, I think, in the rough cutters being out there. Um, yeah. Maybe in, maybe in spots they were kind of nipping a little bit of the top of it, but there was, there was not much coming up. So I, I guess that helps it stand up straighter too when you kind of – when the blades go over the top of it. I'm not sure. But they were um, – yeah, it's incredibly thick and tough. Just all of that aside, all the call stuff aside for the moment. Oh, by the way, Jeff, you have um, dispensation to call Shackleford Jeff because you're also Jeff, but the rest of us have to call yeah. him Shack, so we know, oh. <laughs> so we know what uh, what we're doing. All of the rest of it aside, um, Jeff Ogilvy, what about the feel of you just mentioned there? They come from all over the world to be a part of the US Open and the behind the scenes stuff. Just the feel of a major and the scale of this event. It must be wonderful to be a part of that and a part of that centre stage action, which is the players, of course, once the gun goes off Thursday. Yeah, it's um, the U.S. Open is kind of unique like this in that there's ground staff all over the course during all the practice rounds, um, divot filling, cutting grass. There's there's hundreds of guys on the course, and as I said, I think they recruit guys from all around the world and and, and give a whole bunch of kids an opportunity to come out and just rake bunkers and cut grass and and kind of help set up a major. And it does really give the U.S. Open a feel. It feels like the biggest tournament in golf on the scale that it's on. I mean, the Masters, you don't see a member of the ground staff. I mean, they, they come out of holes in the ground and do stuff when nobody's looking, you know. Um, but this is, there's definitely so much attention being put to preparing the course that they don't stop during the day as we're playing. I mean, they're out there constantly filling divots and, and raking bunkers and checking it out. And it's, um, it does, this is, it's, as soon as you drive in the gate, every single year at the US Open, regardless of the venue, you get a sense of the scale of the event. It's it's typical of the US to just make stuff big and do big stuff really well. And this, yeah, this event is on a scale of like nothing else. Mm. Yeah, it, uh, from the outside, even it looks fantastic. I noticed uh, Shaq on your blog. You noted the other day they've gone back to the manual scoreboards uh, this year, which must be a lovely feel. <laughs> uh... Yeah, yeah, that's a victory. Oh well, I, I'm afraid it's probably only temporary. They'll. I, I had heard there were rumblings last year that a few of the, the clubs saw them going to the electronic boards and vowed that they would not allow those on their property, especially then after they didn't really work very well at, at, um, at Chambers Bay. But, um, uh, yeah, so it, it adds, though, to the, the feeling of the place when you have those scoreboards. I mean, it really, you, you walk out there and it feels like 1927 in a lot of ways if you pay, don't look at what's in the players' bags. And you don't look at the courtesy cards and things like that. And I love that about it. I love that about Marion. I mean, when you look those vistas across, and there's, by the way, there's nobody here today. They have a terrible crowd, but they'll have good crowds later in the week. And when you look across the property, you just see those little, little, uh, just those kind of almost look like paintings of 
like are like the old photos you see in uh, tournaments and I just love that look. I can't wait to actually see some bodies out here and um, see that that kind of sense of the way Oakmont should look. It's kind of the weird, exciting time, isn't it, Shaq? The couple of days before the tour. It's not quite the big show yet, but you can feel it. It's got all the – it just hasn't got the people there quite yet. Just on the Oakmont, before we leave that, and I wanted to talk about some other things with Jeff Shaq, uh, before the 2007 US Open, there was a lot of talk about how many trees they'd taken out at Oakmont previously. Just gives a little thumbnail sketch of – if you look at the footage from 07 and you look at the footage from 94, they're two completely different golf courses, aren't they? This golf course went through some bad times and has come back to being what it was originally intended to be in the last decade and a half. That was for which, Jeff? No, Shaq. Did I say Shaq? Did oh. I say Shaq? Sorry, I thought I said Shaq. Sorry. Uh, I you, thought Shaq. you did, but I heard the Jeff, you know, and I, anyway. Uh, yeah, they, it's, it's, uh, it started with the previous superintendent, and then John Simmers just kept it going. And um, I don't know if they ever fell on hard times, but it was definitely a controversial thing that they did, and there have been a few features that are interesting, and they're, they were they're being given a lot of credit for a lot of the tree removal in the United States. I, I, I think the National Golf Links actually started before Oakmont and probably uh, Carl Olson, the old superintendent there, did more for influencing at least courses in the Northeast. But Oakmont certainly has been huge in making that statement. And I think this week will be even more powerful because they've just taken out another 8,000 trees and the ones they've kept look great. I think Jeff Ogilvy will attest to that, that, that they've kept some really good ones that are in the right spots. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. It's... it's uh, I love everything about it. I mean, we're 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 in a select group. I'm sure there are people who come and look at it and think it looks ridiculous and uh, looks too open and there's not enough uh, in the way of separation and all that other nonsense. Um, I don't know, Jeff. Does that sound about right? Do you think a lot of people would probably look at this and think it looks too barren? Uh, well, I, yeah, maybe they do, but I can't even get even remotely close to that perspective. I think this place looks incredible. Um, it's hard to imagine why you ever would want to have trees, you know. Um, and look, I never saw, I saw, I watched it on TV and I've seen the pictures of the trees, but, um, and there's going to be some of those people, yeah, who, who like that tree line golf course feel, but yeah. it, it's hard to believe that if this is how it started, they ever let, let it get to where it got to before they kind of stopped doing it because it just looks incredible right now. You know, you know the other before Rod. One thing I'm curious of Jeff, if you notice, one thing I, with the vistas that I noticed today walking around that's really cool is when you look across the property and you see these other greens, you see, uh, like you look at certain fairways and you just see the tilt. You look, you see the greens and you see the tilt. I think that's what's so neat about this course is the the green tilts are so subtle. In some cases, some are not. Um, but then when you you look from two fairways over and you see that, I, I think that's just a I mean, it probably gets in your head a little bit, but they look so different than the, when you're standing in the fairway of the hole you're on when you can see them from, from a distance and from the side. I don't know if you've noticed that. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it, uh, it, you do catch yourself looking at other holes when you go past, and you can uh, – it's incredible, the tilt – I mean, they, it kind of the whole property kind of goes towards the turnpike, right? I mean, it goes the ones the yeah. front nine, yeah. the, the the well, the back nine side really goes down towards the turnpike, and the front nine side kind of goes down towards the turnpike. Um, and as you said, it's the only place that on the whole property that you're aware that there's a eight lane freeway or whatever it is going through the golf course <laughs> when you're crossing the freeway. It's yeah. the most unbelievable camouflage job of a freeway you'll ever see in your life. It's 
and you, you can't even hear the cars except for when you're maybe yeah, on the yeah. ninth tee, which is right against it. It's it's an incredible effort in engineering to hide something that big. It's it's amazing. How far below the surface of the course is it, Jeff Ogilvy? Um, thirty feet, maybe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. A big job in it. Wow. But um, when did it go through the golf course? When did they put it through there? Uh, well, it used to be I a railway line. Someone, yeah. It's kind of it's always been separated there. It's just kind of got bigger over the years. I think. Okay. And I think the eighth hole had to be redone. Uh, that's why the eighth hole green is so less interesting than the rest. I think uh, one of the superintendents who was who was involved with a lot of the stuff the founds did, but I believe that was uh, the the one hole that had to be changed a decent amount to uh, make way for the the turn well, bike expansion. To be fair, I think the eighth green is pretty good considering it's two, I had well, two hundred yes. ninety yards for the pin today, so a little bit flat. Yeah, what'd you hit? What'd you hit I there? Hit two on. I hit two on, but it went over the back. Um, <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, I think uh, it the- landed 20, 25 yards short of the green and ran over the back. But, yeah, it's uh, it's 290, but it's not going to play that. Well, it might if it rained. The, see, that's the sort of hole that the rain will change. Um, yeah. It, right now, you can. there's a bunker about 40 yards short of the green that kind of sticks out. If you carry that, you're going to get on the green right now. So... But if it rains and it starts sitting soft, you're going to see drivers on that hole. Does it play a bit like the first of Victoria? Or is it anything like that, except longer? Uh, it's a pretty open green. I mean, it's it's an appropriate green for 250 okay. yards. You know, it 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 would be a quite a decent 250 yard hole because um, it's quite wide at the front. You can run the ball up, and it 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 asks you to land the ball 20 yards short of the green. So it's not. It's not an offensive 250-yard hole. I just don't know if you need the next 40. But uh, does, yeah. it, does it play mm. 300 for the members, or is it more like 250? Or being Oakmont, it probably plays 315 for them. Look, it's, there's two or three tees there, and from memory, on 2007, we only used the back tee once. I think we kind of played at 250, 260 most days. I think, which again sounds absurd, which is about the length of the first of Victoria. Um, but it's a much easier green to hit than the first of Victoria from that distance. Much easier. I think it's, to be fair, it's as silly as it sounds, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a let-up hole in a way because the green, you can miss it on either side. You can just hit it short of the green. You can putt it up from 20 yards short of the green. It's not, the fear isn't around the green. As Jeff suggested, it's probably slightly different in character from the rest of the course. So, um, as silly as it sounds, the longest par three here is probably the one with the least <laughs> amount of danger on it. <laughs> These are the insights we love to get, Jeff. You don't hear this from the other players or from other analysts. That's uh, the 290-yard par three is the let-up hole on the golf course. I suppose that's telling it itself. Just back, just last thing on the openness of the golf course, Jeff Ogilvy. When you're out there playing, we just watched the women play at Sahali, which is obviously the complete opposite. I mean, playing through tunnels and very claustrophobic. What does it do with crowd noise and atmosphere? The difference between, say, Augusta National, where people talk about the roars bouncing off the trees, and somewhere like Oakmont. Does that make any difference as a player? Does all that stuff factor into how you play, or is it just peripherals that have got nothing to do with, with sort of the tournament itself and the vibe of how you go? Um, well, just quickly, I watched that LPGA Championship at uh, Zahali the other day. That was anyone who does, anyone who doesn't want to watch women's golf is dreaming. That was one of the funnest like last couple of hours I've ever seen any golf tournament. Um, I thought it was magic. Oh, brilliant! That Brooke Henderson is a she's a proper golfer. Oh yeah. Um, Anyway, it's, it's these these roars are going to be more like open roars. I think um, they'll kind of get lost in the wind a little bit. Um, Augusta clearly, the trees and the valleys and the whole the they they kind of 
almost amplify the roars, I think, a little bit. Trees, I think, can do that, perhaps kind of kind of concentrate them in the area. They kind of sound louder where you actually are. Um, this one, I think you're going to be pretty aware of roars and cheers because you're going to be able to kind of see where it comes from. Mm-hmm. But it might not quite carry the same sort of volume. Um, I, I, look, I really don't know, but it... Um, it's going to, they're going to be different sort of roars. If it was an open crowd, a, a, a British open crowd, it would be, it would be those type of roars because it really does feel like, I mean, you're in the middle of the Midwest or the northeast of the US, and it does feel, as Jeff said, for want of a better term, it, it is linksy. I mean, it's got that feel about it. That might be the oddest question you'll get this week, Jeff Ogilvy, and you'll get some, so I'm proud to say, hopefully, that... Uh, I'm intrigued to hear you say that you watched the women's average. I, meant to, I was going to ask Clay to this. I know he was watching closely because, of course, Sue Ohi caddies for sometimes and she finished in the top ten. I know that you know Sue as well. Do you do much of that, golf watching? I've often wondered how much golf pro golfers watch. For some, I imagine it's none, but for others, they probably watch a bit. What made you tune in? Um, well, I had a little bit of interest because Sue had a chance. Um... Uh, I just watched, I mean, Memphis wasn't that exciting to me. I mean, I, I, I got into my hotel on Sunday evening and Memphis really wasn't exciting me too much. I don't really watch too many regular PGA Tour events, maybe tune in if I've got a friend who's got a chance to win on Sunday. Um, and I'll, like, I'll watch it in passing, but I don't sit down and watch it. But for whatever, it, just, it was a women's major and I liked the leaderboard. I like watching that Brooke Henderson hit it because I think she's got a She's got a really cool golf swing, and she moves it both ways and hits it hard. And Lydia's obviously fun to watch, although her swing is looking odder and odder. Um, and Sue, I wanted to watch Sue to see if she had a chance. So, I mean, I just, I was just interested in it. Just, I just was captivated. I just couldn't stop watching it. And the finish, it just got better and better. So, uh, I think um, maybe I'll tune in a little bit more. I usually, I mean, I try to watch the ladies' majors. I think they're very interesting, just like ours are, watching the kind of ups and downs and emotions and the tension in the last nine holes that you get out of a major you don't get in a normal tournament. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I, um, I, I chose to watch that over the PGA Tour event. Yeah, uh, you'll probably get a fine uh, for that, get but we enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Admit it. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, Shaq? Women's golf really is in a fascinating place just now, and it really is entertaining. That was a fabulous finish there, but I'm just – all of the things that Jeff Ogilvy's just outlaid there are all the reasons why I was just – glued to the screen for the last couple of hours myself it's in a fabulous place isn't it the women's game i think so yeah i also wonder we've been discussing a little bit around here uh, if uh, it was a little bit of a statement too about people were trying to say well is there something about the women that we're starting to find more appealing in terms of um, some of the things Jeff just described, the way Brooke Henderson moves the ball, uh, it's a little more relatable to a lot of people, the, the, the game they're playing versus what the men are playing. I don't know. I think a lot of it's just uh, Lydia's just so uh, such a great sports person. She just is, I mean, the way she handled that is just, she's, um, she's just, there's nothing like her. Uh, she's so good natured. And I guess I would be if I were 19 and I just knew I was probably going to win about two out of every four majors coming up the way she's playing but she's amazing and uh, I think that helps but uh, boy they really they've just got to get out of this window where they're finishing on Sundays uh, and up against the the champions and the men's and and they don't want to do it they're uh, and I think it's I think it's a mistake I think they need to figure out how to have some Monday finishes or some Saturday more Saturday finishes and stop trying to fight uh, and and just uh, jam up the whole schedule on a on a Sunday, but particularly now, uh, 
there have been some great suggestions. The lay people have said, why aren't some of these tournaments champions or women playing their pro-ams on the, on the weekend and then playing their tournament Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? And uh, then you know, we just had the college golf here in the United States. Got great ratings. A ton of people watched it because it finished in prime time on the East Coast and uh, on a Wednesday night. And I think they just have to be a little more imaginative. But there's so many corporate things and, and other issues driving these these decisions. Always just logistics, etc. Clates, we haven't heard anywhere near enough from you. Some thoughts on the finish of the women's, and I know you would have been glued to it. You may have spoken to Suo since who had that terrific finish, and just some of those issues we've discussed, and then I'm sure you have at least one question for Jeff Ogilvy with two days to go before the Open gets underway, the US Open. Yeah, I spoke to Sue. Obviously, I mean, the one big thing for her is the Olympics, really, the question of how that plays out, because obviously Kari was really, she's been great to her, and she's got, she looks like she's going to knock her out of the team, really, which is... I mean, Carrie's been clearly, you know, the face of that for Australia and looking forward to playing since they announced it. And sort of a month before the end, Sue just played the way she did last week and at Kingsville and looks like she's going to knock her out of the team, which is kind of, I think it puts her in a, I know she feels bad about it. Um, so, so that's one interesting little thing that's going to play out over the next month. But when I got to know Lydia a little bit and she's, as you said, I mean, she's a remarkable player. She's, such an amazing attitude to the people she plays against. She's truly happy if they play well and beat her, I think. But, you know, obviously an incredible competitor. But someone, Shaq, I think you were talking about her swing. I mean, I, I think you could give her any swing and she'd play well. I mean, I hate what she's doing now, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I, I meant Brooke things, Henderson, but Lydia too. Yeah. You, you know, I thought Lydia put on a clinic at Royal Melbourne in February of last year. I didn't, you know, I'd, I'd never seen anyone except for Seve play that course so well. And her swing is utterly different now, and I just don't get it. But I'm not a teacher, so I probably shouldn't talk too much about that. But, look, it was, it was an amazing time, and, and Brooke had an incredible shot in that last hole. I mean, she made a great par at the 72nd hole then, an amazing shot in the playoff. and So it had everything, really. She made a bunch of great pars on that back nine, actually. Plates yeah. <laughs> from some some really horrible. I'm like you, Jeff. I love watching Brooke Henderson. She's just got that determination. She's such a competitor. Is there anything, Jeff Ogilvy, that men's golf can learn from what we've seen, what we saw last week, or is it golf's just golf and the women are playing a game that's probably a bit more recognisable, sort of twenty or thirty years ago for the men and more relatable for the amateurs, I suppose, in that sense. But um, uh, is there anything to uh, learn? The I'm envious of how straight they hit it. I mean, does Lydia ever hit it offline? No. Never um, Missed her first putt ever on the 17th. <laughs> ever. And she, no, she actually does. Yeah, she, she hits it more offline than she used to. Well, I can imagine. The back, the, the, yeah, I'm not a coach, but I know what I work on, and I, I'm not quite sure what she's got to do with her backswing there. But um, the, the little conversation she has with her caddy before every shot, are so precise. They're talking in one-yard increments and land the ball at 179, but it's playing downwind two yards, so it's going to play 177. It's just it's the precision that she plays with is just beyond anything that we do. Um, you know, I, I watching regardless of men or women or seniors tour or amateurs or anyone doing something really well. I think we can get something out of we can get something out of watching. Um, I think there's something there for everyone to learn. I think the way they play is they play very sensibly. Um, that to me, they're more impressive. They're long games as they don't 
squash the ball and compress the ball and hit it like Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy. But they play with a lot of precision and they hit the ball very straight and they play within themselves and they don't play with that kind of male bravado. Um, they don't seem to go for shots that they can't hit. They only do, they do. They only seem to hit shots that they know they can hit, um, which is probably a lesson for a lot of us. We kind of there's a lot of ego involved in our golf, and we sometimes hit driver when we don't want to, or go for par fives when maybe we don't really want to, or go for the big lob shot over a bunker when maybe a little bump and run would do. Um, I think they play very very sensible golf. So I think they um, there's definitely something there for us to learn from. I think. Sorry. Yep. Someone else going to say something there, or did I imagine that somebody was getting ready to ask a question? Maybe they were. Jeff, Just you, imagining things. <laughs> Jeff, you've you've neatly brought us to the playing of the game, and I wanted to sort of talk to you about this. Of course, you have won the US Open. You won it in two thousand six. Do you think about that much, and what sorts of things do you recall when you look back? We know you made one of the all-time great up and downs at the eighteenth, and of course there was the chip in. I think at the seventeenth from the rough prior to that but is it a is it a time you go back too much or an event that you go back too much and think about it was a different time in life obviously. i was think julie was expecting you first at the time and now of course that's changed dramatically we discussed that what happens in 10 years of life but just some thoughts from you about you know that and how that pertains to life now for jeff ogley um yeah i mean that was pre-kids i mean julie was six months into pregnancy with our first who's now a nine-year-old girl who is kind of the boss of the family if you like um, <laughs> no. So you've got what, two bosses now or three? <laughs> yeah, two, at least two, maybe three. Um, and then the next two boys, it's a lot of water under the bridge since then. Like you say, life is very different now than it was then. It was 100% golf and that's all that mattered. And um, things obviously change when you have kids. But uh, I don't think about Wingfoot too much except for around this time of year, obviously. Um, leading up to US Open, generally I get a few questions about it and that gets me thinking about it again and um, because this is 10 years, I've done a couple of, uh, kind of longer interviews about memories from the day and memories of the event and how it changed things. And I, I can't, the, the whole week is kind of a blur. Um, really the first, I kind of have kind of flashes from the first few days. I remember Brazil, Australia played Brazil in the world cup one morning when I was there and then I was in the fitness trailer warming up and I watched the Australia versus Brazil and then that was just finishing. I walked onto the range and went out. I think maybe that was a Saturday round. Um, and it's funny that I remember that more than I actually remember some of the golf shots. Mm. But um, that was 2006 World Cup, yeah. Um, I, I vividly remember the last four holes, clearly every single shot um, and, and, and what it felt like in the moment and what Monty was doing in front and what Phil was doing behind, I, it's very, very clear for some reason for me from the 15th tee to the scorer's hut, really. And then I kind of blur again with the kind of the rush of kind of obligations after the trophy ceremony. But there's that, that, that kind of magic hour that I kind of pretty much remember every shot and I can feel the temperature and smell, smell the grass, if you like. I mean, it's... Uh, that I, I usually, when I think of it, I think of those that kind of last hour. Okay. Do you have that kind of memory of other victories then, or do you think there was something weird happened there? Was there a sense of, I mean, you, you don't know that you're going to win, but was there something different about that when you look back? Do you think there were kind of little messages that maybe something special's unfolding here? Um, look, not at the time. Earlier in the day, I thought I was 
after about five or six holes in the round, I thought I was a really good, as good a chance as anyone. I mean, I think I was leading him after maybe six holes, one in front maybe. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm playing really, really well here. This is my big chance. And then as US Opens do, we kind of, I made just a couple of kind of what feel like sloppy bogeys, but they're not really sloppy bogeys. They're just US Open bogeys, really. A couple of good shots, just get a little poor lie in the rough of the bunker and you make a bogey. And then by the 15th tee, Phil birdied 14 behind me um, to go two in front, I think, at that point, at least. Um, I think two in front. And at that point, it was really like, um, I may have let my opportunity slip here. Let's just par these last four holes. Not many people are going to do that. It was like a conversation I had with Squirrel on the tee. It was a very distinct, I remember that moment. It was like the turning point. It could have gone pear-shaped at that point. And I kind of decided, no, this time it's not going to go pear-shaped. I'm going to, I'm going to finish well. And of course, uh, you can't just decide to finish well and then do it. I mean, I had to do it. I had to do it. But it was definitely a, a moment of uh, peace and calmness, if you like. And Rotella, I mean, Rotella tells us that we remember stuff that are attached to high emotion. So perhaps when you're when you're that tuned in and you're in that kind of headspace, the memory sticks around a little bit longer, maybe. Interesting. In 2013, Justin Rose and Adam Scott had a really interesting text exchange after Adam won the Masters. Justin sent him a text and said, "Congrats." And Adam sent one back that said, "You know, this is our time. This is our time to win these tournaments." Did you have that feeling at that? point in your career then Jeff do you, does that make sense to you I was always intrigued by that as a thing to say um, by Adam. Um, it had been building it, it was it was less that feeling I guess I mean to 2013 I think we were kind of at least we'd had signs that the the tiger era was kind of coming well in its twilight at least so it was more realistic to think that way. I think in my time it was like we just tried to – not that we thought Tiger was going to win every one, but that, the only conversation anyone had at any point was, especially with the media, was, well, Tiger's going to win this week. Um, and it was such a focus for everyone that I think it was just kind of the way people thought. Um, but I had a couple of good majors leading up to Wingfoot, the, the two previous uh, – well, the Open at St Andrews and um, – Baltus role in the PGA the year before and so I really felt that I was coming into my patch you know I'd got comfortable in majors with a couple of top tens like the year before and I I did feel like I was coming into that kind of I'd got to that point where I could realistically think about winning the tournaments when I started them on Thursday so I mean I didn't really have that this is our this is our time sort of feeling but it's an interesting thing I, I heard about that text exchange with Justin and it's um it's right. That's what it feels like. I mean, it's, it's, I guess that's what it, I mean, we all grew up together, me, Justin, Adam, I was a little bit older than those two, but Trevor Immelman, Sergio, I mean, and when you're playing from 16 and 17, amateur golf all around the world and you, you kind of all turn pro at similar times and you're kind of gradually go up the ladder. It feels like you're doing it with your peers and your buddies. So I can, uh, that perspective is, probably how probably how a lot of us feel you know when you're doing it with your friends it's like we were doing this in british amateurs and australian amateurs and u.s amateur tournaments 15 years ago now it's now it's our time to do it in the big big stuff you know that's what you, that's what you spent your whole life preparing for isn't it it really is yeah, 
Let's talk about Nanjing. So yes, go, oh, yeah. go ahead, Shaq. Well, I want go. to ask him about a question now. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Jeff. I was looking through some of the records. Did you do you you know you led the field in birdies at Oakmont in 2007? You had 14, which on this course is mighty impressive. Um, you know what? I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't remember that um, until yesterday when somebody oh. walked past me and said. I was looking at the history of this tournament and I saw that you made more birdies than anyone else. So I maybe knew it at the time, but I got reminded of it yesterday, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, right? I had 14 moments of happiness last time. <laughs> <laughs> which was more than anybody else. It's which was the first with, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sheer misery, yeah. Which brings uh, us to now, Jeff, and there has been some – from the outside, your results probably don't look – well, not probably. They don't look terrific this year. But there's been a couple of glimpses in the last couple of weeks. I spoke to Clates about this the other day. You've been – thereabouts with your game in the last couple of weeks. How are you feeling uh, three days out or two days out from getting underway? I Look, it feels really good. I mean, my, my game has been uh, frustratingly close to really good. Um, I, I truly lost the putting there for quite a while. Um but I've got that back. Um, I feel really, really good over the putter now, and I kind of remembering good stuff, and I, f- I feel like a good putter again. So that element, I think, is uh, dealt with. And it's just this this year's been a bit strange. I think I just uh, playing well is a habit, and I think scoring well is a habit, and I think I just kind of got in the habit of turning sixty nines into seventy ones, and um. The exact reverse of like someone like Jordan does, you know, he turns seventy ones into sixty nines, you know, um, and that just doesn't work over here. And I think I, the confidence took a little bit of a beating, and I just this year's gone really quick, you know. It's just been uh, it hasn't been very good. But yeah, the last few weeks it's felt good. It's come together. I mean, my last three or four tournaments, even though the results aren't really up the top of the leaderboard, there's good signs and good rounds. And I made a pile of birdies at Memorial, and um, a kind of a bit of a bit of a nightmare hole in the back nine on Sunday to kind of undo a decent week. But, um, yeah, it feels good. I feel I feel like I've, I'm potentially playing as well as I ever have. I, don't, I hit the ball way better than I ever did, ball striking now, Tita Green. Um, short game feels there, and as I said, the putting feels like I've, I've got a handle on. So, I mean, it, I, I, I really think it's just a matter of getting used to shooting good scores again, I think. Um, it sounds silly. You think you just – it's – the score that you shoot is more than the sum of its parts. Um, it's not just hitting it well and putting well and chipping well. It's kind of it's scoring well and doing those little things and holding the right part at the right time or hitting the right shot at the right time and hitting the par five fairway instead of missing it so you can hit the green near the green until it make birdie and just all those little things that you get used to doing when you're playing well. Um, it's just putting those fun little pieces back in the puzzle. Funny, funny, funny. Little, hilarious little game, isn't it, Clates? We followed Jeff at the Australian Open and. I think we both agreed, you know. Teter Green, he won that tournament by a number of shots. Some of your thoughts on sort of Jeff's game and some of the things he's talking about there. You've played professional golf for a living. It's a it's an elusive thing to grab, isn't it? Form at the top of the game or, or, or well, results well, at the top of the game. Well, it is. Well, the Australian Open was kind of, with respect to Jeff, it was kind of laughable really that they finished up the way it did. But um, how, given how well he hit the ball and playing with Jordan for three days and like, why isn't he beating this guy by eight shots and he's four shots behind him? Anyway, um, yeah, look, it's all that stuff about, you know, scoring. And, you can, you know, we were talking about before, about before we got on the air, about just you can only 
grind over three foot putts and you know big tournaments for so long before you it's wearing and it's tough to keep grinding it out. You, you know, I'm sure. I mean, Jeff can talk to that, but you know, he's been out there 15 years now and longer than most guys are out there. And you know, I suspect there's at some point there's a price to pay for all that pressure. And I mean, the, the ultimate in, in my time was Seve. Really, that was the guy who was the greatest player I think in the world for 10 years or 12 years, but. In the end, it, it looked like it had just worn him out completely. You know, so, so the trick for Jeff, I guess, at his stage is to, how do you manage that kind of late 30s, early 40s transition into a time when you're probably not playing the, not playing the same golf you did when you were younger? You know, so you either fall off the tour or, or you, adapt, you, know, you adapt your game and change it and figure out a way to be competitive in your 40s. So, so, so it's a tricky time, really, I think. And, you, you know, it's how you manage that transition, really. It seems to me that's critical. Is there a Steve Stricker lurking in Jeff Ogilvy, Jeff Ogilvy? Uh, well, hopefully. I mean, it feels that way. As I said, I mean, I am I was considered long, I think, when I first started, like a lot of kids are. Um, and I probably hit the ball five yards further than I did when I was – 21, but that's considered medium length at best now. Um, it's yeah, there's good golf. I mean, I've I've it's it's been a pretty soft run. Clates is right; it wears you down. Um, you're not trying any less. Um, you just it just becomes those those three and four footers just just are just a little bit. It's just not as carefree, and it's just a little bit more stressful than it used to be. You know, when you when you when you're young, you, you don't. There's no uh, there's no scar tissue in there. You know, and regardless of who you are and how well you play, you, the, you're just going to end up with scar tissue because that's just the way the golf, the way the game is, and the way it treats you. Sometimes it just completely beats you up. Sometimes I mean, we see it with Tiger too. I mean, he's obviously carrying around a fair few scars. You know. Um, Everyone does. I mean, Greg didn't go as deep into his career as we would have thought. I mean, to be fair, Jack might be the only one who ever truly kind of had that true 30 or 40 years at the top of the game. I guess Sneed did too. Um, but Jack was seemed to be very intelligent off the course, and he didn't seem to take his game, game away from the course. A bit like you were talking about Lydia before. I think Jack was – she's very similar to Jack in that respect, that she's – trying to win as much as she can, but she walks off completely happy that someone else got to win a tournament if she didn't. Um, and not many of us can be like that. And I think we carry uh, bad tournaments. We, we leave the parking lot and we go home carrying those kind of feelings where I think the truly, truly, the true way to do it is to just leave it at the golf course. And um, I don't think I was very good at doing that for a while. So, it, it just gets the, the weight gets heavier and heavier. So I feel like I've uh, turned the corner, and hopefully there's a there's a second second career, if you like. Um, it feels like it is. I've been working harder than I ever have. I think really, it's kind of that's the frustrating thing sometimes. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's potential there to have some some really good times coming up. It spirals up and down again, doesn't it? Jeff, I just was noticed that the memorial last week you were paired with Phil Mickelson. Little things like that, you know, that 
that that's kind of where you belong. You should be playing with the top players. And of course, as your status changes, if you have not a couple of not great years, those things change too. That tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. But just to play with Phil in America, I, I, I would imagine, must be different to playing with I don't know, you know, the hundredth ranked player on the tour uh, in an event. All those tiny little things must have an impact. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a big day when you play with Phil in the US, especially at a place like Memorial, which is a really well attended golf tournament. He's um. He's always one of the fan favorites of of any age. I mean, they flock to watch him play because he's fun to watch play and he gives them something and he looks them all in the eye and he signs all their autographs. I mean, he's a he's an incredible uh, attraction for them. So it's a big day when you play with him. Yeah, and it's fun. And it's fun to watch him play. I mean, he plays not the style of golf that most people would aspire to, but he hits shots that you would aspire to. Um, he... He refuses to accept there's nothing on the course that he can't do, you know. And 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 when he's in full flight and he's pulling off stuff, it's it's something you kind of have to see to believe. Um, some of the stuff that he can do is amazing. So yeah, you get used to playing in big groups and big tournaments at big times, and it gets a little easier, and you feel more at home in those situations. And it really, a few years later, if you haven't been doing it for a while, it does. It's it's kind of Oh wow! This is this is what it used to be like, you know. So, um, yeah, there's good stuff coming. That that day was good. I mean, neither of us played very well, but it's big crowds and tough course at Jack's place, and it was a uh, yeah, maybe one of the, another one of those little parts of the spiral up. Yeah, indeed. I know I've said this before, but I, I, my favourite description of Mickelson ever was Faraday, who said, "Watching Phil play golf is like watching a drunk chase a balloon along the edge of a cliff." <laughs> It's just thrilling, f- terrifying, entertaining, fascinating, funny, everything all rolled up into one. I thought that was a terrific uh, summation of it. Uh, Shaq, I'm sorry, I probably have hogged this, and it's almost time to let Jeff go, but some thoughts. No, I've some, been enjoying listening. It's some, been great. Some final questions or thoughts from you uh, about Jeff. I, I don't know. i got a feeling about Jeff over this week, Shaq. What do you reckon? I, I kind of like the way his game's been. 14 birdies out here. That yeah. has to be a nice memory to have. I, I guess, Jeff, my one I'm just curious, kind of your your parting thought as to what's going to be the most important attribute to a game to to playing well here. Is it is it really going to end up being putting? Is it going to be driving? Is it just or is it just going to be a little bit of everything? Um, it feels like a little bit of everything. There's no possibility to contend if you don't hit lots of fairways. So I guess from if if, if you look at it from that direction, that aspect, um, it's going to be driving. But the job doesn't finish there. Um, the second shots, you're not going to be able to win this tournament if your second shots don't end up in the right place either. Um, I think ball striking is going to be key, especially the long stuff and managing your misses. It's funny. It's kind of a little bit different from a normal. Normally, I mean, Traditionally, golf is you don't want to miss it on the short side. You want to miss it on the wide side because it's easier. Well, if the pins on the low side of the green, short sides are better because these long pitches with a lot of green out rough are very difficult. Like to the other, to the high side of the green, they're, they're, it's really tough to shot out of this rough very far. So you really you kind of. Um, You've really got to miss them in the right place, and it's not always um, below the hole. 
it's sometimes closer to the hole is going to be better than a long way on the other side of the green. I mean, it's it's a very interesting kind of second shot course. I mean, second shot course, and then you're going to have to putt amazingly well. So it's I, I hesitate to call it a complete test because I don't think it is because it's not getting you the full uh, test of shots that you have to have around the greens. But if you if you take into consideration that you just have to be good chipping it good out of the rough, I think the rest of it is a very complete test. You're not going to be able to fake it around here. You're going to have to do everything pretty well. I have one other question. I just thought of another question. What, architecturally, what have you learned, or what will you think you'll learn from this course uh, just in being reunited with it and take to your own work? I just love the greens. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just the greens are incredible. They kind of, some of them have that really nice, like someone's picked up a, 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 like a carpet and just kind of given it the flick and you get those mm. kind of really amazing kind of waves in it um, they're, a, they're incredible greens, they're beautiful I mean some of them have tilted a little bit too much yeah. for, the, for their green speeds but that's not really the greens fault that's the green no, speeds no. really um, amazing greens and they're not afraid to have greens go the other way which yeah. um, there's four or five or six greens that slope away from the player coming into the green which is always an awkward thing but most of those holes, as I said, if the greens were rolling at nine or ten, like they probably should, they'd be really interesting second shots. You know, um, I I just can't stop looking at the greens. I mean, I think the bunkers are a bit penal, and I think the rough is obviously a bit long. But there is quite a lot of strategy hidden hidden in a course with narrow fairways, which is a quite a quite a, an achievement, really. So, um, yeah, the greens, the just the, the really. You don't go. You don't go up and back. You change directions all the time. Um, they use the land really well. There's quite a variety of shots you can run up onto the green. Some you have to fly onto the green, and it's um, as I said at the start. I mean, it kind of, it it ticks every box for for a reason. You're going to hate a golf course because of how hard and how penal they try to make it. But you just can't help but love it. And all from a bloke who only ever did one golf course. Extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like Pine Valley, right? Um, we've taken uh, more than enough of your time, Jeff Ogilvy, although there's hours of stuff, as always, that we could continue to chat about. Really do appreciate it, particularly in tournament. Best of luck this week. I hope we get, you keep getting dragged to the media centre, not to talk about 06, but to talk about 2016. I, uh, I wish you all the best this week, and thank you very much for taking some time today. Thanks, Rod. No worries. And, of course, Jeff Shackleford, always a pleasure to talk to you. Envious that you're on site there, and no doubt you'll be bumping into Jeff Ogilvy at the week. But thank you for taking some time today as well. Absolutely, and thank you, Jeff, for doing this. It's uh, really enjoyable listening. Indeed. And, Clates, we never hear enough from you, and that's mostly my fault. I promise to try and do better in the future, (laughs) but it's been great to have you aboard today. Pleasure. That was good. Yeah, fantastic. And that wraps it up for this episode of State of the Game. We hope you've enjoyed it, even though it's been late, and we look forward to doing it all again sooner next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.